what you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast episode number 48. Tonight I've got a very important episode to share with you. I'm here with returning guest Ryder Lee from Raised by Giants. Ryder's been on the show multiple times. He was here for episode number 23, all about psychic spies and how the CIA and intelligence services recruited people actively who had psychic abilities to become spies for them. Also, he was here for episode number 33 called Was the JFK Assassination a Hoax? One of my personal favorite episodes in part one. I'm there with Art Money discussing JFK, his life, what he did. Then in part two, we have Ryder on to discuss his documentary JFK X, Solving the Crime of a Century. If you haven't heard those two, you have to check them out to my favorite episodes. So when Ryder got in touch with me recently and said, Mike, I want to come on the show again. I've got some really important research, but nobody will touch it with a 10-foot barge pole. It's extremely controversial. I immediately said yes, perhaps foolishly, because I didn't even know what we was going to be talking about. But I do know that Ryder always delivers the goods when it comes to his research. He's a fantastic researcher. So I thought, you know what? If Ryder's saying it's important, I'm going to bring him on the show and we're going to find out what it's all about. And I'm so glad that I did because I think it's extremely important too. This episode is about getting back to truth. And we're going to be discussing the agenda that is now in play to get people to actively believe that UFOs are visiting us. Now this goes back a long way, there's a huge history here and that's what Ryder's here to talk about. He wants to take us back to some of these early incidences that much of UFOlogy rests upon and show us how we have been manipulated. Now I'm not saying that UFOs do or do not exist or whether aliens do or do not exist. That's not what it's about. What it's about is about trying to unpick how we may have been influenced, preconditioned and psyoped into believing things that we actually have no basis for believing. It's a very controversial episode but I would say go into this one with an open mind like I did and I think you'll find this one extremely useful. Part one, we go into one of the very first and perhaps most famous incidences in which a UFO was supposedly seen, multiple UFOs, and so much of UFOlogy rests upon this one incident and it actually turns out to be a lie. It was manipulated, the story was fabricated in numerous ways. Then in part two, we're going to talking about what I think is one of the most tragic and disturbing stories that I've actually ever heard. It's regarding how the NSA and the CIA sigh up to Guy into believing that he was being visited by aliens, that UFOs were in the vicinity above his house. And they actually drove him insane with this psyop. It went on for many years. It was very sophisticated. 
Ryder lays it all out to us. And it's an extremely revealing story because right now there is a huge push to have the populace believe in UFOs. We've got these Chinese spy balloons, so-called, that they tried to make out with UFOs. They refused to call them balloons. We had the congressional hearing on aliens, which was very suspect. Then we had the recent footage saying that there was 10 foot, 12 foot, 20 foot aliens in a mall out in the US. There is a clear agenda now to try and push stories around aliens and UFOs. But this goes back much, much further than most people think. And it requires us to question what we hold to be true because many of us have been invested over our lifetimes in these narratives. So many podcasts are pushing stories about alien conspiracies, UFO conspiracies, so I'm not surprised. They don't want to hear what Ryder's got to say on this one, but I do, and I think it's a valuable episode. So members, please head over to parallelmike.com to listen to the full episode. If you're not a member yet, let me just say, part two of this one is explosive. Part one lays it all out, but if you enjoy that one, you'll love part two as well. In closing, I hope you're all well, healthy, and happy. And like always, I'll see you in the next one. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast. We are joined by returning guest, Ryder Lee. Thanks so much for joining us, Ryder. Been looking forward to this one. And for listeners, I just want to lay out what we're going to be talking about tonight. So we're going to, or Ryder's going to be telling us the story of two men in particular. One of them is a man called Kenneth Arnold. And then in part two, we're going to move on to the story of Paul Benevitz. And these are really important histories to know in order to understand the reality of what is happening right now in terms of this UFO craze that has really sparked up. And I think it's really important as well, because what Ryder's going to be laying out is how we may, we may be uh, being deceived. And for me, it's a very important topic because I'm all about getting back to truth, like to understand what's true, what's not, and also getting back in touch with our own rational, critical thought, our own decision making and not falling for narratives that are being given to us. And I think this one's going to be quite controversial. In fact, when Ryder messaged me about it, he said, not many people want to touch this one, Mike. So I was like, oh, great. I want that one. I'll just, whatever it is, Ryder, just send it over and we're going to do an episode on it. So without further ado, Ryder. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about who you are for listeners who don't know what you do, who haven't seen the other episodes, but then also just lay out why you think this is a controversial subject. Thanks so much for having me on, Mike. Really appreciate your time uh, this evening and, and bringing me on because people really don't want to get into it, you know, and we've let this UFO and extraterrestrial speculation grow so far out of hand, right? And I believe that it serves to make people be easily fooled by scammers, grifters, fraudsters, and specifically the government, right? That, And the problem is that people prefer the lie and bring no evidence, no proof to assertions or accusations. And this in turn could mean that any group or individual or government could use the modern myth of UFOs and extraterrestrials that may be bent upon destroying and undermining our society through the deceptiveness, myths, and disinformation surrounding ufology. And this is the issue and the problem is that people think that the cover-up is the cover-up, but the cover-up is not the cover-up. They're actually telling you the truth. And the, the current contactee movement that started with a gentleman named Samuel Eden Thompson in 1950 that no one talks about 
because they've never even heard of him because the story was overshadowed by Kenneth Arnold sightings in 1947 and later on Betty and Barney Hill in 1961. Just like no one really talks about George Van Tassel, who was the first person to claim contact with Ashtar in 1952 the claimed that he was channeling this ashtar galactic command or george king from the ethereal society or dorothy martin from the seekers ufo called in 1954 but this supposed contactee movement has brought about a wave of what can only be described as mental illness that can be specifically tied to the popularization of the extraterrestrial myth which is a huge aspect of ufology that literally no one wants to talk about, and it's a huge issue. So thank you so much, Mike, for bringing me on. And if anyone is interested, you can find me on Raised by Giants on YouTube, on uh, any and all podcast platforms, and on Instagram at Raised by Giants Pod and Twitter at Raised by Giants 8. Yeah, thanks for that introduction, Ryder. And as listeners are probably already finding out, you are or you've made yourself an expert on this subject. You've gone into... Uh, cults all around ufology and aliens and now you've really took on some of these big stories that a lot of the ufo community basically have their foundations resting on and what you've gone and done is took a bit of a wrecking ball to those foundations and now people don't want to hear it and i think a part of this is because it's such a complex and layered psyop if it is a psyop in that it's had so many years in the making. But I think tonight's stories, the two that we're going to get into, will really flesh out to listeners why it might be a lie. And I think it's going to give some really valid reasons as to how it could have happened and how we got here. So without further ado, I'll just hand it back to you, uh, Ryder, and maybe we could begin with this Kenneth Arnold guy. I mean, this was really the first major event in UFO history. It was the first time we had a really big, highly publicized story, wasn't it? Absolutely. And we've seen this rise in the contactee community and ufology as a whole, which is used to play with our imagination, which represents to me an experiment of weaponized folklore rising superstition, mental illness, and paranoia. And really where this entire modern myth starts is with Kenneth Arnold in 1947. Now, that's not where the phenomena uh, starts. It tracks back hundreds and hundreds of years in the past, but they weren't called UFOs or flying saucers back then. There were shields, there were pillars, there were flying chariots, I'm just saying that because I realize the history of the stuff and uh, just because I don't mention it doesn't mean that I don't know about it. And I can see someone in the comment section now, right, saying, well, it goes back way farther than 1947, which it does, but they weren't called flying saucers, right? Kenneth Arnold kicked off the term flying saucers, but through my research and digging into his past, did he really? And it turns out that he didn't. So for people that aren't aware, Kenneth Arnold, uh, he was a very well-respected aviator, businessman, and later on a politician. He was the first person in modern times to witness and report a strange craft in the sky. So on at approximately 3 p.m. on June 24th of 1947, Kenneth Arnold was piloting his A-2 plane in the skies near Mount Rainier, Washington. He was searching for a missing marine craft and witnessed a string of nine objects at approximately 10,000 feet. He said that they flew at amazing speeds of what Arnold estimated at 1,500 miles an hour. 
he said that the objects lacked tails and reflected sunlight. So after witnessing these craft, he landed his plane in Yakima, Washington, and told his friend Al Baxter about the sighting. Arnold then shared his story with others in the uh, piloting community, and they explained to him, well, maybe what he saw was the military, experimental military aircraft, or maybe it was military missiles. Arnold, not satisfied with that explanation, not being convinced, uh, he walked into a local news station the day after and told his story to a gentleman named Nolan Skiff. Now, Nolan Skiff published a short article with the headline, uh, I believe it says something like impossible, but seeing is believing. That story was then forwarded to the Associated Press for worldwide distribution. And the term flying saucer was born. Now, it's important to understand that Kenneth Arnold was, he was pretty reserved about his account of the craft he witnessed. But as the story progressed and public interest became really popular, it turned into this public media frenzy. Now, when you look back at Arnold's testimony, which he did a lot of interviews and a lot of radio shows, this is the thing that people don't understand. He never used the term flying saucer to describe the shape of the craft. He said it was bat-shaped, crescent-shaped, boomerang-shaped, and often said that his comments and sightings were misunderstood. And Arnold ended up working hard up until the end of his life in 1984 to combat this flying saucer and flying disc narrative. So the sketches that Arnold made of the craft that he had seen, hold on, I'm going to get a picture up really quickly because it's a really, it tells the entire, entire thing. When you see the shape of the craft, it's not a, a, a saucer shape at all. It's exactly how Arnold described. Here's a picture of it. Okay. Just for listeners who are listening to this on audio only, because I will add, these images to the member section but it looks like half a it looks like a crescent moon but also with like a little fin so it's like almost like a bat fin yep and that is what he described it as and that's what he drew and it doesn't that picture doesn't come close to the commonly accepted version of what ufos are now what happened was was that Nolan Skiff, the journalist that published Arnold's story first in the newspaper, said that Arnold cited nine saucer-like aircraft. And the media took the saucer-like aircraft and ran with it and created a bunch of different headlines saying that saucer-shaped craft were spotted when Arnold literally never referred to the shape of the craft as saucer-shaped. It was bat-shaped, crescent-shaped. Sometimes he would say, refer to it as half-moon-shaped, just like you mentioned. In an interview with Arnold by the United Press, he said that they were indeed half-moon-shaped, oval in the front, convex in the back. So in June of 1947, Arnold came out with this drawing, and you would think after the, he came out with that drawing that it would end all of the speculation and all of the people seeing that it was a saucer-shaped craft. Here is an, another picture without him in it that gives you a better idea of what the craft looked like. 
you would think that it would end all of the speculation. He's doing this in June of 1947. This was very soon after he witnessed these craft. The same year, a couple of months after, comes out with these drawings. But it became such a mainstream topic with everyone apparently reporting strange craft now that it just got completely overlooked. And there's actually a quote directly from Arnold in relation to what everyone else uh, was seeing and all the other reports that was coming out about Arnold's sighting. And he says that what other eyewitnesses were are reporting are something else or nothing at all, which is a very interesting quote because that means that people were just making up sightings. They're just making stuff up. And Kenneth Arnold is trying to tell people back in 1947 that they're just making stuff up. They're not seeing anything. They're they're taking what he saw and they're also trying to become popular about it, just like what happens today uh, in the community as well. It's interesting and worth noting as well just what time in history we was at because this, for listeners, in case you didn't get it, it was 1947, so it was literally just after World War II where people had become obsessed with this one major narrative for years it was also the first time most people had really thought about the skies because of bombs and uh, planes being dropped. Uh, sorry, bombs being dropped on Pearl Harbor. So people had been watching the skies, and now all of a sudden there was, I guess, a big void both in the media for narratives because the war took up all of the media stories for years, and then also in their consciousness they had a lot of space. The war was over, celebration, but I guess this gave them something to get the teeth into everyone. And when this guy comes along and says, wait a minute, no, 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 you've got it wrong. It's not what you think. That it was like, yeah, listen, well, we're, we're running with the story now. And that's that. Yep. And they kind of just pushed him to one side. So it, it's worth just remembering for listeners, this was a very interesting time in history. Nobody really knew much about aviation back then either. And I would argue that Kenneth Arnold, back then, pilots didn't have the knowledge that they have today. They didn't have all of the instruments. So, so just a quick question before you get back to the narrative. Right. Do you think that Kenneth Arnold was credible in terms of his knowledge that he would have been able to make those kind of judgments on how fast they were going and make those assessments? Because back then, I would imagine aviation was nothing like it is today. And, you know, even the pilots back then would have been what today could just be like a novice pilot. Well, I think that Arnold was credible in his initial sightings. Now, later on, whenever this becomes a super fren uh, frenzy topic and it gets taken on by all the media and all these people claiming to see all these different kinds of craft he starts changing up his narrative and he turns it into something else but i think that that is because of all the different speculations and all the different ideas from other people which you get into with paul benowitz which we're going to be getting into in the the second part of this uh conversation in the second video but to your to your um comments about 1947 1947 was a very strange year the Cold War started in 1947. The National Security Act of 1947, which created and reorganized foreign policy and military establishments of the government. The Air Force was born out of that in 1947, along with the CIA and the DOD, all came out of the National Security Act of 1947. You have Kenneth Arnold sighting in 1947. You have... Uh, uh, you have the Roswell event in 1947. I really feel like the 1947 is a year that really changed the entire trajectory of the United States. 
it's a very, very important year when you go back and you realize everything that was happening. We just got out of a giant world war. We're bringing uh, Germans into the United States, uh, German scientists and engineers. And people really look over the fact that Russia actually got more German scientists than the United States did. Russia officially got more Germans after World War II than the U.S. did. Uh, officially is what I'm saying. There, there was an operation. Um, I'm not going to even try and uh, pronounce the name because it's uh, it's a Russian name and I don't speak Russians. But uh, the, the Russian version of Project Paperclip brought more than 2,500 former uh, German specialists that was relocated to the Soviet Union, along with 4,000 family members were relocated as well, uh, totaling in approximately 6,500 Germans relocated to Russia. And officially, the U.S. Uh, only got 1,600, though that number by some people is wrong and is supposedly closer to 10,000 range. But again, officially, I'm talking officially. But I, I brought that up because it's important to realize that it wasn't just the United States. Russia got them too, and officially more of them. And I believe that that is a huge missing link here, not only in the grand scheme of things, but also crucial in understanding what seems to be a lifelong conflict between Russia and the United States. And when you look at all the things that were happening in 1947, things tend to make a lot more sense. So 1950, sorry, I didn't really want to get off track there because this Kenneth Arnold stuff is really important, but I just thought that I would bring that up really quickly. No, I think I think that'll actually be a, maybe we'll save it for a little bit later, but I think when we're trying to understand why they might want to propagate and run with stories around UFOs, understanding the Cold War just began. You had all these Nazi scientists in the US that were building crafts. We know that they were working on drone technology and all kinds of military um, aircraft. And they were terrified of those plans and those new crafts being understood and being leaked out so that the Soviets might find out. So there was a whole arms race going on. And when we get to maybe a little bit further in this discussion and we're talking about motives uh, i think it's really important to understand that place in history and why they might run with this because people might say well why would they do it well there's a pretty good reason right there why they might want to confuse the populace as to what's really going on absolutely that is exactly what they've done they've uh well we're going to get into it later on uh, everyone listen to the second uh part of this because it really gets deep into that so April 7th of 1950, Arnold comes out, spills the beans on the entire flying saucer misrepresentation and misquote. This is what Arnold officially said. He said that the objects he witnessed fluttered like they were boats on rough water. And this next part is the most important part, which comes from the misquote and the misrepresentation of what he said. He said that when the craft flew, the craft flew like a saucer thrown across water. And the newspapers and the reporters misquoted him saying that they flew, that the craft's shape was saucer shape. When Arnold said that they flew like a saucer skipping across water. And all the headlines printed that they that Kenneth Arnold said that they were saucer in shape, which is 
probably the biggest misquote of all time. And I don't think people really understand the significance of that because we've gotten the shape wrong from the very beginning. And all of these UFO conferences, everyone using thumbnails, everyone using this clip art of UFOs are still installing the saucer-shaped narrative when it was never saucer-shaped to begin with. So are you saying this was the first time that anyone had come out publicly and said, oh, I've seen... Well, no, he didn't say it, but this was the first... There was no instances before this of people claiming that there was flying saucers. Everything rests on this, and it wasn't even true. That's right. Wow. And now we get into what the flying saucer actually was before it was associated with UFOs. Flying saucers was actually a sport. It was a sport called trap shooting. There were these little clay discs. They're they're called clay pigeons now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've been shooting clay pigeons with my wife back in the UK. We did that one weekend. Exactly. But they're not called flying saucers anymore but they were called they started out being called flying saucers in the late 1800s as a way to train hunters and shooters in which they would release birds from a cage and use them as target practice but as uh time kind of went on they found it inhumane to to shoot live animals like that and it was changed to these little clay flat discs named flying saucers by a man named charles lewitsky in 1880 he dubbed these little clay pigeons flying saucers. Sorry, Ryder, but for listeners that can't, listeners that haven't seen that image that Ryder just held up, they actually look kind of like the prototypical flying saucer that they use for alien spacecrafts, like literally just the same. Exactly. And by the 1900s, by the early 1900s, flying saucers had become a very popular sport. There were competitions, championships. And uh, uh, in North America, uh, there were these newspaper articles uh, that were titled like um, North American skies are covered in flying saucers flying through the air and exploding and, and falling to the ground, which is the exact same thing of the phrases and the titles and the headlines of what was put out in the 50s from Kenneth Arnold in all the other incidents, the Roswell incident, same thing. So by the 20th century, the name Flying Saucer had become a common name being used for over two decades. The sport of Flying Saucers had become so popular, it was uh, uh, adopted by the Olympics. The Olympics, the Olympics adopted in 1916. And the number of participants in the sport of flying saucers was 600,000 people in the U.S. They all knew the term flying saucers and called these clay pigeons flying saucers. The military even adopted it uh, to train their soldiers in target practice in the beginning of World War II, which is a whole other thing because it seems like the military basically came in, took the flying saucer sport away from the public. And then after World War II, no one, it, it fell out of public interest. No one was long, no longer doing it, which seems like the very thing that's happening to this day. The disclosure of 
UFOs and supposed extraterrestrial craft is all in the hands of the military, just like the flying saucer term and narrative was in the hands of the military before World War II. It's unbelievable, these correlations. And where I got uh, a majority of this information on Kenneth Arnold, I want to give him a shout out really quickly. His name's Chris Allbeck. He lays out the sport of trap shooting and the sport of flying saucers perfectly in his book titled Saucers. You can get it on Amazon Prime. I've read it like three or four times. It's unbelievable. It's so perplexing. The first time I read through it, I couldn't even understand it because I was trying to figure out what is going on here. And a lot of people that know about that don't even really know what to think. They're like, what does that mean? But it means that the term flying saucer was already in the subconscious of everyone since 1880. So then when they come out and assign a different meaning to what a flying saucer is, everyone has already has it in their head as the shape of the craft. So whenever they call it flying saucers, people automatically assign the shape of flying saucers because they knew the shape of the flying saucer since 1880 and it was taken over by the military. So it's a military operation. Wow. And they would have right? already had that connection between flying saucer and something flying through the air. So it really does play on that latent subconscious memory and i guess even if you wasn't around for the flying saucers you know i don't know how listeners will think about this one but i think we've got ancestral knowledge so even if we haven't experienced something ourselves if our parents have or our grandparents and on and on there is something that can be embedded in our mind you know it's like our mind already has some knowledge when we're born so so that's crazy this would i guess you could call this one of the original psyops like the taking something that's already in the subconscious and then transmuting it, almost the alchemical transmutation into something else and weaponizing it against the people. Weaponized folklore, that's what it is. And these flying saucers, we, we've known about this since 1880. The, the, the These clay pigeons were called flying saucers since 1880. And they look identical to what most people think of as a... UFO with hundreds and thousands of people being familiar with the term and the military adopting the term and the practice in the early 40s during World War II. And two years after the war ends, we get the term flying saucer, but in a different context related to something completely different. So what we have here is that the entire subject of UFOlogy is based on a misquote, a misrepresentation a fallacy. And ufology has been using the shape of a round disc when it was never a round disc. It was never described by Arnold as a disc or a flying saucer. So we've literally had the shape wrong the entire time for 77 years. And all of these people that came after him, you said that after he came out with his story, you had loads and loads of sightings in the public. Were they saying, oh, it's a flying saucer that we're seeing. Uh, a lot of them were, but in Chris Albeck's book, he windles down all of the sightings, uh, like all of the ones that he thinks are legitimate sightings, to only 2% of all the sightings since 1947 were saucer shape or uh, uh, disc shape. A lot of people were seeing, uh, reporting a lot of different kinds of craft, but they all got lumped in to the flying saucer uh, disc category. 
regardless of what they had said that they had seen. Whoa. Still got lumped in with flying disc and flying saucer. Yeah, I was going to say maybe if that maybe because they went with flying saucer, everyone would say, oh, yeah, we saw flying saucers too, because it's kind of now embedded in their mind that, oh, it would look like a flying saucer. But what that's actually even more interesting that they said, no, it doesn't matter what you saw, it's going in the flying saucer category, anyways. Yep, that's that shows happened. intention, doesn't it? That shows intention to propagate the flying saucer story. That's exactly right. And, and we've been telling and regurgitating a misrepresentation of what Arnold said that he saw. And out of Arnold's own words, what other people claimed to have saw at the time wasn't the same or it was nothing at all. And listen, I challenge anyone to find a quote of Arnold saying that the shape of the craft was saucer in shape. Not what other people said that he said. Not what other people quoted him as saying. Because they've obviously got it wrong and misinterpreted his words. But find me a quote of Arnold himself saying that the craft that he witnessed in 1947 was a flying saucer. You can't. You can't and you won't because it doesn't exist. And the entire saucer mythology has been built upon a lie it's a misnomer it's misinterpreted it's a misinterpreted quote from newspaper reporters journalists and researchers and it's still the most popular symbol of ufology to this very day even though it's not necessarily called flying saucers anymore flying saucers are the basis and the root of modern ufology in they switched the name again, right? It went from flying saucers, flying discs to UFOs, and then it was switched in, I think, 2016 by Hillary Clinton into UAPs. And that's done for a reason, too, because now if you do a FOIA request wanting to get any kind of information on UFOs and you put UFOs in the FOIA request, they're going to tell you that they don't have any documents on them. They're going to say, oh, sorry, we don't have any reports, no no documents on UFOs. You have to send them a letter that says UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. Right? And now they're getting, they're going to switch it again. They're going to keep the, the UAP thing, but the, the focus is going to turn into USOs. I've been talking about this for a really long time on my channel, uh, Raised by Giants, because that is where it's going to be heading. It's going to be heading into... Uh, underwater submergible objects, USOs, because that is where they want to push everything towards. We're going to start seeing videos coming out of supposed craft going into the water, coming up out of the water, and that's where it's headed. We're, we're going to start getting away from the sky and these craft coming from the sky. It's going to be refocused and relocated back to earth and it's going to be surrounding our oceans why do you think that is right or why do you, do you think it's potentially because they've got more control over terrestrial objects and maybe then you could easily add fake items to it or you could make up that there was a discovery under the water whereas in the sky it's a little bit more difficult because we're living through an era now I mean, if you go back to when there was people like Kenneth Arnold, back then, and I would say right up until the year 2000, there was a fraction of people on planet Earth who walked around with a camera. He was talking, 
in America, maybe a thousand people in a single day might have a camera with them, something along those lines. Today, we've got literally 95% of the population that's not maybe elderly or a child with a phone in the pocket with a high definition camera. And yet nobody's taking photographs. No one's got a clear high definition photo of any of these objects. They're just not arriving. Now, if this phenomenon was correct and true, you essentially had very few people for like 100 years with a camera and they took all these grainy images. But the advent of photography being in the hands of the everyday man and woman, you'd you'd have an explosion. They'd be everywhere. You'd have millions of photos by now from across the world, but they just don't exist. They're not there. So to me, that's one of the most obvious red flags that why are we not getting a deluge of photographs? So they now need to focus on something else. And I guess if they go back to the terrestrial or underwater, that's probably much easier to fake. Way easier to fake. And the reason that no one has any clear pic pictures and, and clear images of them is because they're all fake. Because none of them are real. They're, they're, they've, something has been superimposed into the video or the photo. That's the reason why they're so blurry. That's the only reason why they're so blurry. The only reason as a filmmaker and somebody that works with editing software and putting videos together and making documentaries and stuff, the only reason that you would blur footage and blur the background or blur the, the subject of the video is so that you can hide something within the image or hide something within the video. So if you make the entire thing blurry, that means that it's going to be more difficult for the naked eye to spot something or if you put it through some kind of processing imager to see if the if there's been anything inserted or superimposed into it, it's going to make it more difficult because the whole thing has been blurred. That's the reason, and that's the only reason. You know, we have super high-quality cameras now. There, there's literally no reason why all of the footage should be god-awful. I mean, the, the footage of the supposed extraterrestrial in Vegas. Did you see that footage? Yeah. That looked like the, that it was filmed on a freaking early 2000s Nokia phone. Like, what do you what do you mean, dude? Like, why is the footage so freaking bad? Well, it's bad because it's not real, because it's fake, because something has been put inside of the video and they're trying to cover that up by blurring the entire video. That's the only explanation and as other people should be talking about within the community they should be seeing that exact same thing i mean so, a lot of these people that uh, examine ufo footage and ufo videos are normally filmmakers or have an idea about what editing software is or uh, adobe premiere or they know after effects or they they know all of these programs and yet none of them are commenting and telling the public oh, well, it's probably because the majority of this stuff is fit because it's been blurred, because the footage has been messed with, something has been superimposed into the video, something has been superimposed into the picture, and they're doing the blurring to cover up and hide the fact that something is in there that's not actually there. None of them have commented on that. They all talk about, oh, it's the phenomena. It's the phenomena itself, Mike. That's what it is. The, the extraterrestrials are so smart that they can they they blur your device and uh, make your field of range show so crappy that you can't see what's happening. And every single one of them can do that. I'm like, that is a bunch of nonsense, dude. Nonsense.
Yeah, I, I would argue that, well, no, I wouldn't argue. I'd state as a fact that in a single day today, there is more footage recorded than in the 100 years prior to the year 2000. In like a single day, most of that is in the hands of the everyday population with high-definition cameras spread out across the entire world. Ryder, we would have millions of photographs in high definition with no blur if this phenomena was legit. We would have yep. millions of photos and there's none. They, they just ain't happening. And when they do get a photo, just like you said, it looks like something from the 1970s again. You know, it's, you know where we did have a lot of really clear photos, Ryder, of the moon landing, perfectly shot photos <laughs> on the moon. And I think they took so many photos, it averaged about a photo every seven seconds in which everything was perfectly framed lit shot perfectly and that's what i wanted to ask you actually i don't want to derail you too much because you're always on such a good flow but uh do you think that the whole ufo narrative or the let's say the flying saucer narrative was used as a catalyst for them to do the moon landing fake because i, I guess looking back what that primed people for is listen these aliens potentially have come thousands of light years and they're going at speeds that are phenomenal. And then if you're going to convince people just a few years later, let's say a decade later, that these men, these Freemasons, were going to travel at seven miles per second, Ryder. Seven miles per second, they were flying, which is like 16 times faster than a bullet fired out of a gun. That's the, that's the speed they were going at. And they were going to go to the moon. And that moon's just there. It's just in the sky above us. And if these aliens can do it through galaxies, then surely we can get to that little old moon just above us. Do you think this was like a key primer for embedding in people the uh, the narrative and the preconditioning, I would say, the belief that we can travel to the moon? Because if you're going to pull off something that big, you need to condition people years in advance and get them to really adjust what they believe is possible. That's an interesting thought. I never... Never really thought of that. That's very interesting. When it comes to the moon, I don't really know. I think that regardless of what you believe, if you believe we went to the moon or we didn't go to the moon, the footage is definitely fake. The footage is fake. The pictures are fake. Now, some people can take that. Well, if they faked it, then that means that we didn't really go. And I don't know that for a fact. We could have went. We could have sent a uh, a drone up there or an unmanned spacecraft and or, or something. Who knows? I really don't know. And I don't really like to speculate on it if we actually did or didn't go. But I can tell you that there's been several people that has examined the footage and the photographs on the moon and it's undeniably fake so that's something that i can for sure that i can say for sure and uh what you're saying it could possibly be that could have um because we know how things like that shift our perception and our ideas and our reality of what we possibly may do or could do or the um taking it a step farther it's like you know, sports people, like people are breaking new records every single day. And then that encourages others to do just as good or come out and do better. So that analogy could be applied to this as well. But before we get too off here, I I don't think that I mentioned that George Lewitsky, the gentleman that created the term flying saucer for the sport of flying saucer, said identically the exact same thing that Kenneth Arnold said about the craft when he, when he created that. 
when he created the, the sport and the term flying saucer for these little clay pigeons. You'll find quotes of Arnold saying that the craft was bat-shaped, boomerang-shaped, shaped like a pie pan, shaped like a half moon. He never said that the craft was a saucer. Uh, he said that the craft moved like a saucer across water, not the shape of the craft. Now, George Lewitsky said the exact same thing coming up with the idea of the sport of flying saucers in 1880. 67 years before Kenneth Arnold, he said the exact same thing, that he got the idea of these clay pigeons, these flying saucers, from watching kids toss saucers across water. Now, make that make sense. You got the flying saucer term from George Lewitsky in 1880. He says that he got the idea from watching kids throwing saucers across water. You got Kenneth Arnold in 1947 saying that the craft flew like saucers skipping across water. You have the military taking the term uh, right before World War II of the flying saucer sport. It's unbelievable. What do you think is going on there? Like, what explanation can you come up with for that? That sounds bizarre. It is really bizarre. It's like, it's almost like things are in a, in like a repeat, you know, like things just get regurgitated, new meanings get assigned to them that were previously already established decades and decades and decades ago. And a new meaning gets uh, tied to it and then it becomes and it gets turned into something else. And it's just history repeating a phrase and a term that's been adopted by uh, modern times and they take that term assign it to something else and then it turns into something else but it, i don't think that it's a coincidence that george lewitsky comes out with this term flying saucer from watching kids fall saucers across the water and then kenneth arnold uh 67 years later in 1947 said the exact same thing about the craft I don't even know really what to think. Like, and it's very perplexing. And anybody that's listening to this is probably perplexed as well. Like, I, I don't really know what's going on. All I can tell you is the facts that George Lewiski said that he came up with the term and got the idea from watching kids toss saucers across water. Kenneth Arnold had the exact same thing. Flying saucers was back in 1880. Kenneth Arnold. Uh, the, the whole term of uh, flying saucers was reimagined and repurposed for a completely different term having to do with extraterrestrials. I don't know, dude. My mind is just as blown as yours. I don't really know what to think. I mean, I guess one thing that you could argue, and I think there's probably a lot of truth to it, maybe it is true, is that ideas, you know, when we have thoughts and ideas, there's an energetic quality and they exist outside of us. You know, it's almost like, if you imagine everything that we could imagine or think of does exist outside of ourselves, it's maybe accessible at times. You know, there are like we see this all the time and you might have experienced it in your life where you have a capacity to know something or do something and there's no frame of reference as to why. It's just there. It's like you did, you did something that was not there, that was not possible to you before or you, you had knowledge of something perhaps even, maybe like a more intuitive form of knowledge. So you don't remember reading a book on it, you don't remember being told it, you don't remember studying it and yet for some reason you just got it, you just knew it and you know, you hear about child geniuses and I've seen, I've seen some people, I don't know if I'd call them geniuses, but people who 
just naturally had an affinity for something. They were just leagues ahead of everyone else without ever having studied it. And again, where does that come from? You know, where are they, they must be accessing knowledge from outside of themselves because it's not within, it wasn't there. And you hear about children, for example, recall past lives. And I've heard all kinds of interesting stories, nothing that I can verify, but where their own families have said, listen, we, we thought it was a, a load of bullshit too until we actually took them to this place and found out that no, actually he he or she had recalled something that was legitimately had happened there 50 years later. And I've even heard of young people that, that had a past life and then went and found their old wife when they became of age and kind of remarried the same person. I've actually heard a story where that happened. He claimed that he was married before this child because he... he he saw a photo and he said, I've been here before. And his parents then took him to the actual place. He started to speak of a lady. They found the lady that he was speaking of because there was reference points. And he ended up when he got to 18, going to live with that damn lady. So, I mean, what is that? I don't know. Whether you believe it or not, I don't know, because I don't know what to believe. But I guess I just want to put it out there that maybe that's part of what our experience here is, is that there are things that we're not going to be able to explain. We can only kind of guess as to what it could be and... That's probably the best guess I've got, Ryder. Yeah, and if we live in some form of uh, holographic simulated reality, then that would mean that possibly information is just all around us and we just can't see it. And sometimes we pick up on that information and we don't really know where it comes from. And that come and that goes back to, well, you know, where do your thoughts come from? Are, are your thoughts actually coming from you or is it coming from outside of yourself? Do, can you tune into a certain frequency like on a like a radio if you had like a handheld radio and you, you scan through the channels and then you get to a channel that comes in clearly is is that how our thoughts work as well can we tune into a certain radio station and it'll change the the frequency of our thoughts and depending on how low or how high depends on what kind of thoughts you get i don't know it's kind of interesting in in the idea of you know, that this is uh, some form of holographic simulation and it's uh, that information is all around us and we can just pick that information out of the ether. I mean, it's happened to me several times where I've had like an idea, like a, a good idea, and I don't do that idea. I don't act on that idea. And then a couple of days later, I see that exact same idea that somebody else did so is it possible that we're all kind of hooked up to a collective think tank and certain ideas and certain thoughts are being pumped into a like a bunch of different people at the same time and some people act on those thoughts and some people don't act on those thoughts i mean that's happened to me several times and i've kind of learned now that when i get a idea i normally just do it doesn't matter really how it's going to turn out because I've learned that if I don't do it, then somebody else is going to do it. Yeah, I agree with that. So, I've had those same thoughts too, like why I've been woken up sometimes with a really burning idea, like almost like I was being told, yeah, you have to do this. You have to do what I'm telling you to do now. <laughs> Sounds a little bit psyopy, actually. Uh, but I, but I, have a, I have a religious belief. Well, not religious. That's the wrong word. Spiritual belief. Like, I do believe that there was a creator and there is a God. So that's how I interpret those things. It's like this impulse is, is what I'm supposed to be doing now. And like you said, whenever I follow it, it turns out right. Like it was meant to be almost. Like it was meant to be. It never goes wrong. But it does go wrong if I don't follow it. <laughs> like you said, sometimes 
I mean, I had a guy on the show called Rick Moon, and he spoke of a time when he went to he went to a big kind of men's group. He's a, a Christian. So he went to this men's group and he said that there was a speaker on stage and he was talking to the whole audience. There was thousands of people. And he said, There's, I've got a book here. He said, it's for someone in the audience. It's for a, a man. It's all men. He said, he's 34 years old. And he said, I'm going to put this book down and I want him to come down here and pick up the book. It's for him. And Rick said, he was sat there and he said, he just got an intuitive thought. He's like, this is for me. And he didn't want to be there. He got kind of harangued to go there. He's like, I really didn't want to be there. Uh, I was an introvert and I certainly didn't want to get up. But he said, like, I just knew I was meant to go pick up that that damn book. And he said, just as I was about to get out of my seat, it'd been like a minute. And the guy said, listen, someone, he's here. Someone needs to pick up this book. And he said, just as I was getting out of my seat, some other guy did. And he went down and he said he picked up the book. So he said, I quickly sat down because I was really embarrassed. Like, oh God, I was standing up and what an idiot I am. And he got to the stage, this other guy, and the guy said, oh, okay. So he said, you think this book's for you? And he said, yeah, yeah. And he went, how old are you? And he said, I'm 33. So he said, well, pick up the book then. So the guy picks up the book and he said, that book wasn't for you. He said, I said it was for a man uh, who was 34. And he said, that's not you. He said, but you're going to take that book. It's yours. And he said, the guy who was meant to pick this up, somebody has just took your blessing. He said, and you've lost it. So that was, the, and he said, he said, he sat there in his chair and he thought, oh, shit. He's <laughs> like, that, that's life right there. He's like, Something was there and it was meant for me. But if I refused it, somebody else took it. And maybe that's right. when you've got an idea, like you said, that like you've been given that, that's yours. That's a gift for you. But if you don't take it, Ryder, someone else is going to take it. Someone's going to be giving it. Like you say, oh, Ryder didn't want it. Okay, well, fair enough. I'll give it to Mike. Mike will make that episode and get 20,000 views or whatever the hell it is. That's right. That's the way that it works, unfortunately. And I'm glad we brought that up because that's... That's really important. And that's happened to me several times. And like I said, I, uh, anytime something like that goes on, I just jump on it like immediately. And, um, I think that that's the proper thing to do because again, just like you said, if you don't do it, someone else is going to, someone else is going to take that. And, uh, then it's no longer going to be yours. It's no longer going to be your blessing. And that's a really, that's a really important story. Uh, I don't know how did that guy feel bad about taking somebody else's blood? Cause that's another thing too, is like, if you feel bad about your actions, even if your action is perceived noble, then that can also be perceived wrong by the universe and can actually do damage to you as well. Uh, my personal belief, right? Like if I do something and I feel bad about it, that's actually worse than doing something bad and doing something wrong to me personally. So I don't ever do anything that I am going to feel bad about ever. I don't do anything wrong. I don't do anything that I'm going to feel bad about or, or that I'm going to regret ever because that regret holds you down. I think regret is a very strong compass, right? Like that's not a normal feeling. Like you, if you're feeling regret, that's like a compass inside that's telling you, like you need to reevaluate what you just did. That's right. And before we wrap this uh, this episode up, I want to go over Kenneth Arnold's um, sightings after 1947 because this is another thing that people don't talk about when they're doing research on Kenneth Arnold or if they bring up Kenneth Arnold because supposedly by 1981, Kenneth Arnold had said that he had seen he had had eight other sightings that happened to him after his 
initial sightings. Some say that he had 11 other sightings, but some of those aren't verified. So Arnold's second sighting was just one month after his first sighting in July of 1947. He was flying his plane Idaho to Oregon, and he saw a cluster of 20 to 25 what he said, brass-collared objects that he claimed looked like ducks. One appeared to be round and uh, another appeared to be round and rough on the top. He said that they flew in like a cluster, uh, more like blackbirds than ducks. And according to Arnold, even though they looked like ducks, he said that they weren't ducks. And this is an issue and a problem because I think that a lot of times... Back in these early sightings, people try and compare what they're seeing to other things that they can also reference and other things that they also know. So he saw, supposedly saw what he described as craft, but he also said that they were, uh, that, that they resembled ducks. Right, well, if you're seeing something strange in the skies, flying in the formation of birds, it looks like birds, would it not be birds? It's just like what we're going to get into in the second part of this uh, discussion with Paul Benowitz and seeing something strange over a military base. Common sense and critical thinking will tell you if you're seeing some strange lights or strange weird things over a military base, that it's the military, that it has something to do with the military. And just like in that story, there was a lady that was brought to him basically to feed him a bunch of mis and disinformation. And she said also in uh, 19, I think that it was 1971 or 1970, she said that she had seen a UFO that resembled a Goodyear blimp. Like, come on, dude. Like you're, you're seeing, you're relating all these objects in the sky to normal everyday objects. It's, it's, if you think it looks like that, then it's probably that. If it resembles that in, in such a fashion, to the thing that you already know, then it's probably that. If it looks like a Goodyear blimp, moves like a Goodyear blimp, then it's probably a Goodyear blimp. If it looks like ducks, moves like ducks, in the formation of ducks, it's probably ducks. But they definitely were ducks, okay? That's according to Arnold, they weren't ducks, all right? So Arnold had apparently taken footage of this event and the people that, seen it said that they were ducks that it was birds uh but supposedly the footage went missing poof just kind of gone never to be seen again Ryder, this really is starting to sound like the moon landings <laughs> they lost all that footage as well but but actually just before we leave this one there are there are some big similarities in a lot of these what i mean and whether you believe in the moon landing or not is uh i, I just wanted to point out similarities in that there's always the same red flags in that we've lost the footage. The technology, oh, it doesn't exist anymore. We, we can't recreate it. What, all those high-definition phones? Yeah, well, you know, fortunately, you can't recreate it with the modern technology. It's just not possible. And, you know, there's always the same, I would say, gaslighting. Like, it's like a form of gaslighting where no matter what you say to try and show, this doesn't meet any standard of as evidence to show that this was legit. There's always a reason. Or, or, or the worst part, 
is they'll just say, oh, well, we don't have the evidence anymore. It disappeared. So you'll have to believe it. <laughs> so all you can do now is, like, oh, okay, everything that could verify this was true has just been disappeared. And so now we've just got the stories. And this is the problem what I want to get to in this and the next part is that what we're being told to do is to deny our critical thought, to deny our actual sight, sound and senses, and instead just take what we are told and accept that instead. It was the same with COVID. It was the same with 9-11. Suspend your critical thought and we're going to tell you what you saw, how you saw it and what to think about it. And nothing else can can exist that. And that's what I think we need to get away from. That's why I really like your work, Ryder. That's why I think you're doing powerful work is because you're kind of going for the golden calves as well, which is really needed because people are clinging on to these UFO stories so tightly because it was for a lot of people, myself included, it was the first ever time they questioned something for themselves. Like when I was younger, I used to read UFO magazines. So that was the first gateway into, wow, they might be lying to us about something. And now to be told that, no, actually, that might have been a double cross. It really hurts people and they're refusing to give up on it. It's almost like a friend they don't want to let go. It's like the friends turned into a raving madman junkie and he's, like, he's committing crimes and they're just remembering him as that great guy from school, best friends, and they trust them again and again and get bent again and again. And it's kind of like that with the UFO story. People have become too attached to it. So I'm really glad that you're doing this work, right? And I'm looking forward to uh, going into the second one because the second part with the story of Paul is just wild. Like it really is one of the most insane stories and I'm really glad you brought it to my attention because before you shared it, I never knew about it, but now I do. It's really well, it's, I, listeners will see why that is in part two. Yeah, you see the exact same kind of tactics um, in the community to this very day. I mean, Sean Kirkpatrick, the head of Arrow, which is a government-sponsored program to look into UFOs, UAPs, and supposed extraterrestrials, just came out and did a interview and the it was published and he says that extraterrestrials don't exist he has seen zero evidence of extraterrestrials zero and he's not the first person elon musk also said that he has seen zero evidence of extraterrestrials right so that if they're not extraterrestrials that means there is a phenomenon ufos do exist but they're not extraterrestrials that has been the problem from the very beginning, but they've been telling us to our face for decades since 1980 when the Roswell story became very popular. And even before that, whenever it first happened, they come out and say that it doesn't have anything to do with extraterrestrials. After the Washington flap event with the UFOs over the White House, Air Force General, we have no reason to believe or suspect that this has anything to do with extraterrestrials or extraterrestrial craft. Well, if it's not extraterrestrials, that only leaves one other option, that it's us, that it's our advanced technology. And Sean Kirkpatrick says that it's drones, that it's military drones that people are seeing. And he goes into great detail about the uh, about these drones and the people that are seeing these weird, strange cubes. That's a brand new military technology where they put a cube inside of a sphere and the cube bounces around into the sphere to control the movement of the drone. So people have been trying to tell everyone for a very long time that it's not extraterrestrial, but people don't want to believe it because they want to believe that it's a cover-up and that the government is hiding 
extraterrestrials and not telling us about extraterrestrials. And then whenever the Pentagon comes out in 2020 and says, oh, yeah, guess what? UFOs are real. UAPs are real. They never said that extraterrestrials are real. They never said that aliens exist. They never said that extraterrestrials are piloting these craft. But people have had it in their head from listening to all these UFO gurus and the theorists and the conspiracy theories about extraterrestrials that they automatically put extraterrestrials into the narrative. And when the government came out and said, oh, yeah, UFOs and UAPs are real, people associate UFOs and UAPs with extraterrestrials. So therefore, they believe that the government has also confirmed the existence of extraterrestrials when they have never said it. They've never said it. So it goes back for a really long time. And people are now attacking Sean Kirkpatrick. Jeremy Corbell is on uh, Twitter and on his podcast saying that Sean Kirkpatrick is a liar. He's a fraudster. He's making stuff. I'm like, no, bro, he's telling you the truth. But no one wants to hear that because it destroys the entire community. And it makes it to where people can no longer make any more money off of the theorizing and the conspiracy theories. That is the problem. That is the issue. None of these conferences and none of these people want to tell you the truth. And they don't want to tell you the truth for a reason. They don't want to tell you that it's advanced uh, military technology. Because that ruins the theories. That ruins the speculation. No one can speculate on it anymore because they know what it is. And there's too much money that's being made off of speculation and theories. And we're going to get into this more on the second episode. And uh, thanks for having me on. Hope people found the uh, the Kenneth Arnold story uh, super interesting. And I hope that they look into it more and realize that Kenneth Arnold never said that the shape of the craft was saucer shaped. That was a misnomer and a misquote by the news reporters, the researchers, and uh, the newspaper articles. Well, from that misquote, millions, millions of stories have been born from that misquote, and it's been taken by a community. And I just want to say to listeners, I'm not, I'm also not saying that UFOs or unidentified flying objects or any of that stuff isn't potentially true what i am saying is there is nothing in my life that i have seen that meets the evidential standard to say that and listen there's plenty of things that i believe where there is zero evidential standard for example in god i believe that i believe there's evidential standards but my point is i can't say to somebody else listen look at creation look how beautiful it is look how finely tuned it is to say that means somebody created it somebody else might say no i don't take that as evidential standards so fair enough my point is not to try with this episode to say if you believe in UFOs that you are wrong. It's to say that there is something else going on as well. And there's a lot of evidence to show that something else is going on. But I've got so many questions I want to get into in part two, Ryder. And that was a fantastic part one. And I hope listeners join us in the member section for part two. So let's leave it there. Just one more time, Ryder. Where can listeners find you to see more of your work? You can find me on Raised by Giants on YouTube. You can find me on uh, any and all podcast platforms on Twitter. Uh, X now. It's X. 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 Um, you remember wrestling back in the day, NWL? Yeah, um, I do. <laughs> on X at uh, Raised by Giants 8 and on Instagram at Raised by Giants Pod. Thanks so much for having me on, brother. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you too, Ryder, and I'm looking forward to part two.
what you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Not really peace in our time, peace in all time.